So in this uh, last session, I'm going to speak a little bit about three apostles, the Apostle Peter, the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle John. The reason those three apostles is because some of you may know I've been involved in uh, this documentary, three documentary series on those three apostles. In Pursuit of Paul was released last year, In Pursuit of Peter was released this year, and In Pursuit of John will be released next year. And so this has really got nothing to do with union with Christ or, you know, anything really that we've been talking about. But, uh, you know, Brian thought it might be interesting to give some insights, things that I've maybe learned, picked up about these guys, and which will help us, I think, to have more insight into the New Testament and should be an encouragement to us as well. So for I've got three apostles, okay? And I'm just going to take an hour for each one. No, it's okay. <laughs> Three apostles, and I want to sort of do three things with all three. So there's nine things, okay? And the first will be a brief sketch of their biography, all right? A, a brief outline of their life. Second will be um, some, you know, one sort of insight into their character. And the third will be some central contribution that each has made, okay? So it'll be an outline of biography character and contribution. So I'm going to begin with the Apostle Peter. Of course, he's famous from the Gospels, and he comes from a fishing village known as Bethsaida on the coast of the Sea of Galilee, moved to Capernaum, which is where he met Jesus. Sorry, he met Jesus at the uh, River Jordan through John the Baptist's ministry. Now, Peter's original name is Simon, of course, and Simon is named for Simon Maccabeus, one of the uh, Maccabean brothers who were involved in the Maccabean revolt, which uh, threw off uh, Seleucid rule, and Israel lived as its own nation briefly for a time before it was taken over again. And so the name Simon represents kind of a political fervor, a sort of hope for Israel being independent again. And I think you see that in, in Simon's interactions with Jesus, where he's looking for a Christ, a Messiah, the son of David, to throw out the Romans. Right? He's really looking for a political rule. And Jesus gently and sometimes less than gently corrects Peter's enthusiasm for these things and shows him that the, the kingdom of God that's going to come is going to come differently. And so you remember the scene from Mark chapter 8, where Jesus asks the disciples, who do people say I am? And Peter is the one who gets it right. He says, you are the Christ, the Messiah. You are the Son of God. Absolutely, he gets full marks. He, he understands who Jesus is. But then Jesus says that he is going to be handed over to the Romans and he's going to be killed and rise again. And Peter says, no way, that's not going to happen. And you see that in Peter's mind, that makes absolutely no sense. How is the Messiah, the promised king, going to kick out Rome if he's dead? And Peter goes from the front of the class to the back of the class when, when Jesus says, you, you don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Get behind me, Satan. It's pretty strong, pretty strong rebuke there. So Peter, I think, struggles to get it. What, what's nice about Peter through the Gospels and what's appealing about him is he's very relatable, isn't he? You know, he's very passionate. He loves Jesus. He doesn't get it all the time. And then he, you know, when, when Jesus gets in trouble, 
when he is arrested, when he is on trial, he, he denies that he even knows Jesus. And this is the low point for Peter. And uh, he's really uh, discouraged. He's cowardly. And, you know, it's, it's quite the betrayal. Um, they're basically best friends. Peter is presented by all the Gospels as, as being the closest disciple to Jesus. He's his best friend. And your best friend, when you're in trouble, says, I don't even know that person. You know, it's a real failure of courage. But after Jesus' resurrection, uh, Peter is restored. And so in John 20, um, he's fishing in, in Galilee, back in Galilee, he was a fisherman. And Jesus is there and restores him, the resurrected Jesus says, do you love me? Yes, I'll, you know that I love you. Do, do you love me? Yes, do you, do you love me? And three times he said, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. So this is where Paul, uh, Peter's threefold denial of knowing Jesus, I don't know the man, I don't know the man, I don't know the man, is overturned by Jesus, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And I think it's very encouraging because Peter failed in the most catastrophic way and yet is entrusted by Christ to feed his sheep, to be a pastor, a shepherd pastor for the people of God. And so once Peter receives the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem with the other disciples, we see a totally transformed person, don't we? Where he was cowardly, denying even that he knew Jesus. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are preaching and the same authorities, the same authorities who arrested Jesus and had him killed, instruct Peter and John to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And he says, well, I don't know, what, what do you think we should do? Should we obey God or should we obey you? Right? And so, of course, they continue to obey God and preach in the name of Christ. We see a totally transformed person from worldly cowardice to otherworldly um, courage through the power of the Spirit and in the name of Christ. And Peter is really the star of the first half of the book of Acts. The book really focuses on his ministry. And he is the first one to figure out the role of the Gentiles in all of this. So you know the, the story that he's at Simon the Tanner's house in Joffre, it's on the coast of Israel, and he's up on the roof, probably because the tannery really stinks. He's up on the roof, and he's praying, and he receives that vision. And the, the picnic basket with these really unclean foods comes down, and he hears a voice, Peter, kill and eat. And he's like, no, no, Lord. Can you say no to God, right? <laughs> this is, he, he's very passionate this way, and his passion leads him to say dumb things sometimes. He's like, no, this happens three times. And then finally he gets it because some envoys have come from Cornelius, the centurion, who is further up the coast in Caesarea. And the centurion Cornelius is a God-fearing man, and he wants to hear from Peter, the great apostle. But Cornelius is a Gentile. And so just after he receives this vision, Peter has a knock on the door. Uh, the centurion Cornelius wants you to come and explain all this Jesus stuff to us. And so he's, he's just had this vision and he's putting it together. Whoa, okay, yeah. God has just told me not to call unclean what God has made clean. And so he goes and he associates with the Gentiles and he, he tells them everything that he knows about Christ. And they're converted, they receive the Holy Spirit. And so Peter is the first apostle 
to get it with the Gentiles, that the Gentiles are now in because of what Christ has done. And then Peter is a leading figure in the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, when uh, it turns out, you know, these Gentiles are getting converted in various places, and the church needs to figure out, what are we going to require of the Gentiles? Because these Jewish Christians, the church is entirely Jewish at first, they've been keeping, you know, the laws of Moses, they've been acting like Jews do, with their food restrictions and keeping the Sabbath and the importance of circumcision, should we require all this of the Gentiles? And they decide, no, we should not do that. And so they send a letter, they compose a letter to the Gentile churches, you know, just avoid some things that are going to cause your Jewish brethren to stumble, but, but otherwise you're free. You don't need to become Jews. The important thing is you're in Christ. The important thing is the gospel of Christ. You're saved by grace through faith. And so Peter is an important part of that discussion. And then he drops off the face of the earth in the Bible. He's not mentioned again in the book of Acts after chapter 15. So what happens to Peter? Good question, right? Well, we get a few hints from the rest of the New Testament. Most notably, Paul's letter to the Galatians, where in the course of rebuking the Galatians for losing the gospel, he tells them about his rebuking of Peter. Peter has gone to Antioch, and Peter, uh, Paul confronts Peter to his face saying, you've messed up the gospel because you have rejected fellowship with Gentile Christians. So what's happened, it seems, is that after about 10 years of, in Jerusalem, being the leader in the church in Jerusalem, Peter makes his way to Antioch, which is north. At the time, it was in Syria. Now it's in the uh, southern, southeastern part of Turkey. Uh, and he's involved in the church there. Paul is there. That's Paul's home base. I'm going to get to Paul later. But it seems that some Jewish believers came up to Antioch and were saying, you know, Jews and Gentiles can't associate. And Peter kind of falls in with the Jews. And Paul's like, what are you doing? You're compromising the gospel when you do that. And he rebukes him, and it's recorded for everyone to read, in Galatians. But it seems that Peter, in, in his humility, actually accepted that rebuke. Um, and he goes on to have a ministry to Gentiles. How do we know that? From Peter's own writings, 1 and 2 Peter, especially 1 Peter. The letter is addressed to Asia, Bithynia, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia. Those are all Gentile places in modern-day, what is now modern-day Turkey, in Asia Minor. And he speaks to these churches as though he knows them. And so tradition holds that after being in Antioch, um, which way does it go? After being in Antioch, he crossed over through Turkey and visited the churches, these Gentile churches in Turkey, uh, and writes to them later when he gets to Rome. Now, we also think that he was in Corinth for a while because Paul talks about him in 1 Corinthians and it seems that uh, Peter has, has been there. But eventually we have him in Rome. Actually, 1 Peter, the end of the letter in chapter 5, he says, uh, sends a greeting from the church in Rome by saying, um, she who is in Babylon sends her greetings to you. And all commentators understand that to be a reference to Rome. Rome is like the new Babylon, the sort of center of the evil empire. And uh, Peter is in Rome, and tra church tradition holds him in Rome. Now, what happens after that point? 
around AD 65, Peter is rounded up with many other Christians by Emperor Nero. Emperor Nero at AD 64 has turned nasty against the Christians. It begins by him blaming the great fire in Rome, which he started himself, on the Christians. And so after AD 64, it's not yet formal persecution of the church, but it's Nero's sort of sort of personal persecution of the church and they start rounding up Christians. uh, Peter is rounded up with them and tradition holds that he was crucified upside down not far from where St. Peter's uh, Basilica stands now. So that's kind of the outline of Peter's biography. A characteristic of Peter, well we've seen that transformation from cowardice to courage. I think um, what we see in Peter's character is he's always got this passion uh, and sometimes the knowledge or the understanding trails behind. You see it in the Gospels and we even see it when he's an apostle and rebuked by Paul. Paul is so sharp and so insightful. He sees the implications of what Peter is doing before Peter understands them. But Peter wears his heart on his sleeve And I think his love and his passion is very clear. And that's one of the things that stands out to me about Peter. His contribution, we've got his two letters in the New Testament. And uh, one of the important themes that they contribute is the idea of being aliens and strangers in the world. Being sojourners, chosen sojourners, people who are passing through this world. This world as it is, is not our home. It's the next world that we belong to and Peter has his eyes firmly set on that and that's a big transformation too from his desiring a political Israel, a politically independent Israel overthrowing worldly powers. He's gone from wanting that to seeing his home is not in this world at all. His home is the New Jerusalem and that's where he's going and what he's living for. Okay, so there's a little snapshot of Peter. Then we move to Paul, whose biography is more complicated. He was born in Tarsus, which is on the south coast of modern-day Turkey, and uh, born into a family of Pharisees. And it seems that as a teenager, his family relocates to Jerusalem, and he sits under the teaching of a famous Pharisee by the name of Gamaliel. And he rises through the ranks of Phariseeism, and... He clearly has a mastery of the scriptures. He's zealous. He's very impressive. He's the one to watch, you know, in Phariseeism. Then, of course, we read about him in Acts chapter 8 and chapter 9. He is there when the first Christian martyr is killed. Stephen is put to death by these Jews who he is offended by his preaching. And they kill him and Saul is there giving approval to his death. And it seems that this martyrdom of Stephen has triggered something in Saul, a kind of zealous rage against the way, against this Christianity. It wasn't called that then, but it's what we call it, the way, is what they called it, this Christ stuff, this stuff about Jesus of Nazareth. And Paul goes on this rampage against the church. We see it in chapter 9. He's going from house to house, locking up believers And then he gets permission from the high priest in Jerusalem to to travel up to Damascus in Syria to find more believers and lock them up. And 
we assume, have them killed. So on his way to Damascus, he is encountered by the risen Christ, and it's a profound experience for him. He immediately is converted. He's blinded, as we know, and then Ananias is commissioned by God to go and meet him and help him and help him receive his sight back again, and then, uh, you know, explain all this stuff to him, and then he's baptized. It's a radical, powerful transformation, and it's one of the reasons I'm a Christian, because here is public enemy number one. Here is number one persecutor of Christians, profoundly converted and becomes number one missionary, number one apostle, number one theologian in the history of the church. There's really no way to explain it unless it really happened, unless the resurrection of Christ was real. Now, what's interesting after this point is Paul kind of disappears. He preaches in the synagogues in Damascus, those very synagogues he'd gone to go find, hunt out and find Christians. He preaches in the name of Christ now. And then he disappears, we're told in Galatians, he tells us he disappears off into Arabia, which is here, right? We're in Arabia for three years. And we don't know what he's doing, but we can assume he was preaching there too because he got in trouble with the king of Arabia, uh, Arit, um, what's his name? King Aratus, King Aratus IV. He's mentioned, he mentions him in 2 Corinthians 11, and he's chased out of Damascus by King Aratus IV. He, by the way, King Aratus IV is buried in Petra, which is the capital city of Arabia at the time. And you might know the, what's called the treasury in Petra, um, it, it's famous in movies from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, right? That's where the Holy Grail is supposed to be. That's actually the burial place. That's, it's not a treasury. It's actually where King Aratus IV is buried, the same king who chased Paul. And I assume he was chasing Paul because Paul was preaching the gospel. Then Paul goes to Jerusalem and for the first time meets the apostles. And they're nervous about him, but Barnabas testifies for on Paul's behalf, and especially spends two weeks with Peter. Now, Peter is the top apostle at this point. P Peter is the leader of the church. And Peter, I think, and Paul have a, an important time together where Paul says he confirmed that he was not preaching in vain, that his gospel was the true gospel, the same gospel they've been preaching. And, uh, you know, I think that's when Peter really informs Paul about everything that, that Jesus said and did. And that's where he really hears the oral history of Jesus' life that informs his own ministry. But then Paul disappears again for 10 years. 10 years. There's a 10-year gap between that visit in Jerusalem and his first missionary journey. Where does he go? He goes up to Tarsus, his hometown, into a region called Cilicia in Turkey. And we know that he is helping the churches there, and he's, he's preaching, but none of that activity is recorded. But Barnabas is a key player in Antioch, where I mentioned earlier, was in Syria, now it's in Turkey. And this is the center of the Gentile church. And they're, they're real, the church is really taking off, so much so that Barnabas needs help, and he goes and finds Saul and brings him back to Antioch and they work together in ministry then they go visit the sorry no that's out of order next step is they're commissioned by the Holy Spirit to preach further afield 
and they embark on the first missionary journey. They go to Cyprus and then into the interior in Turkey, a region known as Galatia, with, with churches like Pisidian Antioch, Derby, Lystra. But they go to Cyprus as their first stop, which is Barnabas's hometown. It's his home country. And so they probably go there because Barnabas wants to preach the gospel to his own people. And maybe it's a, it's a sort of safe place to go first. Turns out to be not that safe. They face persecution. But achieve amazing things preaching the gospel. And the, the chief official, the Roman official there who answers directly to the Senate, his, his name is Sergius Paulus. And right then in Cyprus, Paul begins to be called Paul instead of Saul. So it wasn't his pre-Christian name, Saul, and then his post-Christian name, Paul. He probably, as a Jew born in the Roman Empire, had two names all the time. Saul was his Hebrew name, and Paul was his Roman name. But in his first missionary journey, maybe influenced by the fact that he's trying to evangelize a guy called Sergius Paulus, his first missionary journey, he's called Paul for the first time in Acts, and he's only called Paul after that point. So he becomes Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. They go up. It's a pretty modest first mission. They come back and then they visit Jerusalem for the Jerusalem Council recorded in Acts 15. And they report what's been going on in the churches with the Gentiles. And that leads the, the apostles, including Peter, to say, hey, let's let the Gentiles be Gentiles. They don't have to become Jews as long as they trust in Christ. Okay. So, all's well and good, um, but <clears throat> um, Paul goes on his second missionary journey, this time goes across the interior, visits the churches in Galatia, and goes up north and sees a vision th- with a man in Philippi, a Macedonian man, saying, come, we need you. And so he wasn't intending to do this, but he goes into Greece for the first time, or Macedonia it was, as it was called then. Europe for the first time, preaches the gospel in Philippi, in Thessalonica, in Athens, and in Corinth. You know the stories, read about them in Acts, I'm not going to spend time on them, except that he spends a year and a half in Corinth uh, because it's strategic, and we see Paul the strategist. It's a port, a port city, a very important port with lots of sea trading and thoroughfare and so if he can preach the gospel there and build the church there then people are going to come in and come out of the city it's strategic it's messed up because it's a port city and they've really you know adopted all the vices that you do in that sort of city it's like the Vegas you know of the ancient world Paul's there for a year and a half on his way back to Jerusalem he visits Ephesus for the first time on the west coast of Turkey and he says makes a note to himself and says well speaking about strategic cities this is a really strategic city and he's going to come back there goes back to Jerusalem then he embarks on his third missionary journey he goes straight makes a beeline straight across Turkey to Ephesus and he plants himself in Ephesus for three years it's the longest he spends in any city on any of his missionary journeys because it's so strategic It is the hub, the city for the whole of Asia Minor. It's the religious hub, the spiritual hub, the economic hub. It's got so much influence. He stays there in his teaching and his preaching. You read the story. He causes some trouble uh, in Acts 19 and 20. But his intention of being there is people are going to come into Ephesus. They're going to hear the gospel. They're going to be converted. Then they're going to go back out and share the gospel, just like what's happening here in Dubai. 
People are coming into Dubai, hear the gospel, become converted, and then go out to their homes around the world. Okay? Same strategy that Paul used in Ephesus. And we see it in the letter to the Colossians because Epaphroditus was converted under Paul's ministry. He's from Colossae, about 100 miles to the east of Ephesus. Epaphroditus, Epaphroditus is converted, goes to Colossae, and plants the church in Colossae. Paul never went to Colossae, but he wrote a letter to the church called the Letter to the Colossians. And he tells how Epaphroditus shared the gospel with them. So that's exactly what he was trying to achieve by being there in Colossae. Then after his Ephesian ministry, he goes and backtracks all the other places he's been through Greece, Philippi, Thessalonica. He doesn't go to Athens for some reason, back to Corinth encouraging all the, the churches there and then back to Jerusalem where he is arrested because the Jews who are in the temple, he goes to the temple to worship, to pray. The Jews know who he is. They create a riot. He's arrested by the Romans. He's clearly under threat of death. They give him a 600-person Roman guard to Caesarea and then he's imprisoned in Caesarea for two years while they're working out what to do with him. He preaches the gospel in every opportunity. And in fact, he gives an account of his, of his conversion two more times. So it's not only Acts 9 when you read about his conversion, you also read it in Acts 22 and Acts 26. And each account gives more details. So you should check out Acts 22 and Acts 26 as Paul himself recounts what happened to him on the road to Damascus. Anyway, then he figures out he's always been wanting to go to Rome. He figures out, I've already got a ticket to Rome. I'm a Roman citizen. All I need to do is appeal to Caesar. So he appeals to Caesar, and they are obligated by Roman law to take him to Rome and present him to Caesar. He goes to Rome via Mira on the coast of Turkey, gets on a diff different ship via Crete, then gets caught up in a horrible hurricane that for two weeks there at sea, without being able to see the sun or the stars. Can you imagine how horrible that would be to be out of control on a ship in the first century for two weeks? They crash on Malta. And I think their time in Malta is a wonderful reprieve. It's like three months they're there. And the Maltese people take care of Paul. He's with Luke. They, they love him. He heals some people. He preaches the gospel. And it's really lovely to see that even today, 2,000 years later, the people in Malta are very proud of what Luke says about them, that they are great in their hospitality and their care for Paul and Luke. And Paul's three-month visit there has made an indelible stamp on that country. You can still see it very clearly today. Anyway, then makes, it, makes his way up to Rome. And he's under house arrest for two years, and the book of Acts ends, Acts 28. We don't know what happens then, um, except that he, at some point, goes into a more serious form of arrest, appears before Nero, and is beheaded by Nero. Now, before that happens, it's possible he went to Spain. He always wanted to go to Spain. He told the Romans in his letter to them in chapter 15, his plan is to use them as a station to get off into Spain. Uh, we don't know if he did. It's not recorded, but we have two evidences that maybe he did. One is the church in Spain absolutely has a strong tradition that Paul went to Spain. Now, sometimes these traditions can't be trusted, but sometimes they can. The other thing 
more credible source is that in AD 96 or 97, Clement, who at that time is the Bishop of Rome, says that Paul went to the end of the West, the terma, the edge of the West, which at that time was Spain. Now, there's debate about whether that really does mean Spain or whether it means Rome as the center of the Western world, you know, or whether it really means Spain. I think it means Spain. And I think here's a person who probably knew Paul. He certainly knew what was going on in the church in Rome. He was the bishop in Rome 50 years later, 30 years later. And he says he went to Spain. So I think Paul probably was released from house arrest, went to Spain, preached the gospel there, got into trouble again, got arrested, was rounded up by Nero, gave his account of Christ to Nero. Nero put him to death by the sword. Characteristic of Paul, the thing that strikes me about Paul is he went from persecutor to persecuted. He went from the one who gave approval to Stephen's stone, death by stoning to being stoned himself on several occasions. And it's interesting, he goes from a, a persuasion of violence to one of pacifism. He's never violent as an apostle. He receives violence, but he uses words to persuade and love. That's what he does. So it's a profound transformation, you know, from violence to that. And that's what the, the gospel made. And of course, the example of Christ who laid down his life at the hands of hostile people, murderers who wanted to kill him. And he is embodying that contribution of course we have the 13 letters in the new testament profound theological contribution and and i think we not only have salvation by grace through faith but what we've been talking about this weekend union with christ he is the theologian of union with christ and it's profoundly important as i've been trying to uh, make the case today and and yesterday finally we come to the apostle john and we know least about John. He's really not one of the star disciples. What we do know is he's the youngest of the disciples. He may be the disciple that Jesus loved, according to John himself in John's gospel. May be the case, but that's debated. We know that, that John and his brother James, they come from a family, probably a middle-class family. They're fishermen, but the, his father, their father owns a fishing trade. So they're not just Fishermen like Peter, who were probably economically on the lower end of things, but the owner of a fishing trade, so more middle class. Okay? And we get a little hint of this when John and James' mother goes up to Jesus, and like this proud mother who wants the best for their son, says, can you put one son on your right and the other on your left when you come in glory? Right? Who does that? And, but it seems that John, we don't know if John's like going, Mom, don't do that. Or if John's going, yeah, you know. Right, And I suspect it's more like that. That's the sort of family that he's grown up in. He's kind of like used to his parents sort of putting them in positions of privilege, in positions of, of power and glory. And so John is kind of, I think, probably taken up with his own worldly glory while he is a disciple of Jesus. So what happens to John? Well, John, like the rest witness to the resurrection of Christ, receives the Holy Spirit and emboldened to preach. He's not mentioned much in Acts, but when Peter is told to stop preaching in Acts 4, John is there with him. John is Peter's younger sidekick, okay? Then John kind of disappears. What happens to John? 
Well, it seems from tradition that after the death of the two great apostles, Peter and Paul, both dying around the same time in the mid-60s at, at the hand of Nero, John is still in Jerusalem and around AD 70, after the fall of Jerusalem, when the Romans come in and destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple, John leaves with Mary, the mother of Jesus. And you remember from John's Gospel that Jesus from the cross says to Mary, here's your son, talking about John, and John, here's your mother. Now, it's actually possible that John and Jesus were cousins. That's not an established fact, but it is possible that they're cousins, and so it's kind of like, let Mary be looked after by her, her family. And John, according to tradition, goes with Mary to Ephesus, again Ephesus, and John becomes the apostle in residence there for the next 25, maybe 30 years. All the apostles have died off. He is the last apostle standing. So he kind of takes over the ministry. It's kind of a beautiful picture. Peter and Paul struggling so hard for the establishment of the church. Paul was the apostle in residence in Ephesus for so long, for three years. And now John was there, continuing the ministry as the apostle in residence. He functions kind of like a, a bishop, might not like that word, but as the overseer of various churches in and around Ephesus, because by this time, Colossae is just one of several churches in that region that have probably been planted from Paul's ministry, just like Epaphroditus, people become converted, take the gospel message back to their hometown. So when John writes the letter to Revelation, uh, so when John writes Revelation, the letter to the churches has the seven churches of Revelation. They're all in that region, just outside Ephesus, all within a two or three hour drive in that radius of Ephesus. And so John has had a ministry to all those churches, and we see it reflected also in his letters, 1, 2, and 3 John. Wonderful letters, especially 1 John, is often neglected and sometimes confusing. But 1 John is, I think, written to those churches, Ephesus and beyond, in that region. Now, John managed to annoy the emperor at that time, the emperor Domitian, and Domitian sends him off to exile on the island of Patmos. Now, I went to Patmos this year, and I have to say, that this, there are worse places to be exiled. <laughs> now, I'm sure it was, it was not developed at the time, and, you know, it was really just getting John out of the picture, away from Ephesus, where he was having so much influence through the whole region of Asia Minor. But it is a beautiful place. It's worth visiting. And it's there that he has the vision that is written down as the book of Revelation. Uh, later, well, the, the timeline is, is not secure, but he has two years in Patmos. He goes back to Ephesus, and either before Patmos or after Patmos, he writes the book of John, the Gospel of John, in Ephesus on a great hill, uh, the Seleucid Hill, it's called. And, uh, sorry, no, it's not. It's Selchuk, Selchuk Hill. And at the top of this hill, you have this 360-degree view of Ephesus and the Aegean Sea, and it's like this cosmic viewpoint. And tradition states that on top of that hill, John wrote his gospel. And it helps to explain why it's such a cosmic gospel. You know, it has such a big picture of everything. In the beginning 
was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is huge cosmic vision of Christ and of the whole universe. And he, you can just imagine him sitting there on that hill penning uh, the, the Gospel of John. So what's... And, and John is the only apostle to die of natural causes. He dies an old man. He's in his 90s at the end of the first century. Now, what's distinct about John? I think John is the artist. I think you see it in his writings. He has this artistic way to portray Jesus. A, a literary art, you know, using images and very clever narrative techniques. You know, in some ways, all the authors of the New Testament are artists in their own way, but John in particular paints this vision of Jesus, this portrait of Jesus that is beautiful and profound and very striking. And I think that reflects who he is. Also, he is, and this is his contribution, he is obsessed with the glory of Jesus, and that's very interesting considering where he came from. He went from being obsessed with his own glory to being obsessed with the glory of Jesus. And I think that's a great picture for, for us because everyone wants glory, if we're honest. Everyone wants, wants glory. That, I think that's what we're actually built for. We're built for glory. The problem is when we seek our own glory, it's the wrong glory. It doesn't satisfy our, need, our desire for glory. And it's completely self-centered. John becoming an apostle of Christ now pursues the glory of Jesus and presents him in all his glory and seeks his glory. This is the one theme that runs all through his letters is the glory of Christ. And so he feels that need of seeking glory but sees it found in Jesus. And one of the beautiful things about the glory of Jesus is he shares his glory with his people. And so this is one of the ironies. If you seek your own glory, you might have a worldly fleeting glory for a little while, but you will lose it. But if you seek the glory of Jesus, then you're glorifying the right person and Jesus in his glory shares his glory with us, which is a much greater glory and more satisfying glory that we can achieve on our own. So by not seeking our own glory, we actually receive a greater glory, sharing in the glory of Christ. So there's my little snapshot of three apostles. Do we have a little time maybe for a question or two related to the apostles? Do you want to do that? Over here, over here. 